Tanya 91 day at a time. I'm Rob Murphy. It's day seven. Three games again. Busy day. Lots of stories. The hosts are back in action. Loads of drama in the other games as well. Really, really glamorous fixtures, I think, when it comes to World Cup. Uh, Kieran O'Hara's with me. Kieran, I love when it's European teams against South American teams. I always just like that. Or it's European teams against a African side in round in the second game of the day. Yeah, it also makes it different from watching the Euros. <laughs> <laughs> exactly because it's one of the things Mick Foley welcome back that is different about World Cups 30 years ago there were a lot more European sides uh, than there are today so you have groups with three European sides for example we know about that in Group F so from that perspective there's a bit more colour on this particular day yeah yeah there's a bit of colour and I suppose the fact like you know you have you had the likes of a Yugoslavia Colombia again you know the very fact that, that there was a Yugoslav team looking back 30 years ago it's it's something from it's something from another era, and the idea of them playing Colombia, um, it's a bit of exotica about it. And again, you know, again, your natural sort of um, your memory goes back, and you kind of remember the fact that you never saw these teams. Really, you only knew the names. You know, you were waiting to see the Valderamas and the Higitas and the Stoikovic's and these boys because um, you just because you just didn't see them. You just didn't see them. So it was a whole the whole the whole thing was sort of um, just such a huge novelty, like, and you know. It would it would stop the clock for a, for a couple of hours here in the afternoon, you know. On the line, making his debut on our Italian ninety podcast, but we're delighted to have him along. A man who knows this era inside out and a sports journalist based in the United States of America now, but well known to our, a lot of our listeners from Ireland. Dave Hannigan, you are very welcome along. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, great to be here. Uh, trip down memory lane. <laughs> I was 19 years old that summer, so it's uh, hazy, but uh, still great, great, very, very fond memories of that tournament. And again, for the reasons that Mick says, they were, they, you know, the likes of the, the Colombians and even some of the Yugoslavs, these, and definitely the Cameroonians, you, you knew the names from reading. You remember there used to be a page in Shoot magazine, um, you know, Planet Soccer around the world. And, and that's where you knew, knew some of those names from. You really didn't see a whole lot of them. Like today, obviously, the, or the whole world plays in Europe and we get to see everything. Uh, but that there was a glamour and, and there was a kind of a novelty and it was exotic. And we, you know, we really um, sat, you, you wouldn't, couldn't let the tour, you couldn't let any game go by because you'd never know when you'd see these people again on your screens in a way that I, I think the World Cup today is devalued because we see all of the world's greatest players every week in the various top European leagues. Kieran is a, a full collection of shoot magazines. How much do you want? For yeah, that? he's he's, been, he's going to be quoting from it this entire we, podcast. <laughs> we, we we can negotiate off air, this. <laughs> Mick, go ahead, sorry. No, 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 you're fine. No, I was kind of just going to echo that 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 idea that you know. I mean, I think the '90 World Cup. Not you can't quite recall the '94 World Cup. Just but even I'm just thinking in terms of the stadia and everything looked different. You know. Um, Everything looked different. Like if there was just the whole thing was a huge novelty. The fact that, like you mentioned, shoot there, I still have the collection. It was a it was a magazine called Inside Football that came out for a little limited spell, but they had a kind of a little World Cup run as well. It was one of those classic free binders with part one jobs, and uh, you kind of got it every week. But you had you know you were looking at the they started their World Cup preview months out. So you were looking at them and you were, you know, staring at these pictures of these guys and you were reading about them, possibly, probably for the first time that time. Because again, your your exposure to football, and this is the thing I suppose that 
that that people of a, certainly lads of a of, of a later vintage wouldn't wouldn't get. I suppose is the fact that like your your exposure to football was possibly sports daily on a Saturday. Hopefully, sports night. I think wasn't it on a Wednesday night on England and in, on the BBC, and uh, the occasional bit of grainy footage. So I mean to have this for a few weeks in the middle of the summertime in full blown Technicolor was just Oscars was my was mind blowing. Mind blowing. I you know it's it's why the World Cup is special, and I'm sure it's probably still the same. No, in in a different way for kids. No, but it's just as Dave said, you're just. You know, you nearly know all the players before you get there at all. You've seen them in Europe, and that this was 1990 was totally different. It was a, it was just a, how would you call it a, it was just a, it was just a buffet of stuff you could pick from, uh, of, of different things you wanted to look at and see and taste and try. You know, Dave. Before we start our run of games, just and it's our first chance to chat to you. We've been speaking about the fact that there's an age range here in 1990 in this uh, podcast from about nine or eight to about 14. So you, you're going to bring it up now to uh, a man who was out in pubs drinking. I'm not suggesting for a second, and I hope to God the, re- the rest of you lads weren't drinking at 14. But um, just give us that idea. You were in London, you said, and that summer. I, I finished my first year at UCC and um, and then it was, a, it was a World Cup of two halves for me. <laughs> I watched the first week or so at home where actually I, I like to measure World Cups in, in televisions. In 1978, we got our first our first colour television for the World Cup uh, in the Argentina World Cup in 78. And then in 1990, our telly was breaking down and then off the back of a lorry came a giant pub television like that, you know, I, I live in a corporation house in Toker, a tiny house with a tiny living room. And we feckin' wheeled in this thing that took over the whole house. And my mother said, it's only staying for the World Cup. It's gone, like, once the World Cup ends. And it was a, there was a, a slight problem. The colour was starting to fade. Uh, so not only did we have this thing that was too big for the house, it also then, to watch a game, you had to pull the curtains and hang stuff over the curtains <laughs> so you'd have to have the room in entire darkness uh, for the games. <laughs> so that's, that was, that's how I watched some of the games. And then and then the other games I, were, I watched, it, it, when I was still in Cork, I watched a pub called, um, called The Maltings, uh, down by UCC. And then I moved to London uh, to work for the summer, which... I guess you know everybody used to do back then and I went to London to work on the sites um, and I ended up watching this, the rest of it in uh, in a state called Fibsbridge Estate which I didn't know it at the time it was one of the toughest estates in South London uh, they used to shoot the bill there uh, remember the bill the TV oh, yeah. show they used to shoot the bill and uh, one of my relatives had, was a kind of a ne'er-do-well and he was living there so I kind of uh, fell in with him and his, his missus and it was funny, like, because we, we were, you know, the, the second half of the World Cup then became about Ireland pushing on and then Ireland famously losing and are being knocked out. And then the English, you know, losing that epic epic semi to, to Germany. And that was, uh, you know, we got almost as much joy out of that as we did in Ireland defeating Romania in that typically bitter kind of, you know, unreconstructed way kind of thing. So that was my World Cup. But it was, you know, it was, again, you know, you measure, it, it, that was the other thing about World Cups then, I, I think as you get older, you forget this, is they were they were a period of your life. Like when you think back of, of to a tournament, you think of where was I in that period of my life? You know, 19, fantastic age, great time. 
23, I was a journalist. So I, my World Cup 94 was totally different for me. And then 98, I was at the World Cup. And then, you know, so you look back through all your life and, you know, and I suppose like for me, 82 was the greatest because I was 11 years old and it was that magical tournament and, and you know, with, with the, the great French team and the dastardly Germans and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, that, that's kind of, you know, to give put my tournament in context, I suppose. Brilliant way to set the scene. Let's get into the uh, first game of the day, Yugoslavia against Colombia. Day 7. June the 14th, 1990. Yugoslavia 1, Colombia 0. I'm interested in the concept and we'll bring the lads in then, but I'll let you go first on the idea of just how much we knew about players. I mean, Valderrama was a player we knew, but watching him in this game, you can see his beautiful passing ability. He's just a really gifted player. Or the Higuita drama. I mean, five, six times in this game, we got nice little moments of him coming out of the box. The kind of stuff that maybe today wouldn't be as dramatic because keepers play as sweepers, but this was so novel. We got replays of every time he did it. Yeah, like, this is what Higuita's notoriety is built upon is... Uh, and I do remember the the television punditry at the time, whether it was that the boys felt slightly old-fashioned at this stage. Every time there was a moderately eccentric goalkeeper in this World Cup, Dunphy and Giles went to town on them. <laughs> uh, and we're going to see that as the tournament goes along with Sergio, Sergio Goicochea. Like, they had a real bugbear with him. But Higuita was the beginning of this. They were just kind of long-haired, garish jerseys. What the hell is he doing rushing out? And it was one of those, it gave them that beautiful moment where they were going to go, this is going to come back and haunt the Colombians. So the great thing about Valderrama, our knowledge of him would have been so minimal. I think I had seen him play once prior to this World Cup, which was, I think Man- Manchester United might have played Montpellier in, in some game that I, I caught on Eurosport or something. But I mean, to put it in perspective, the French League, we talked about the Spanish League not being what it is today then. The French League was sixth or seventh in Europe at this stage. Like the French national sport is cycling; it's not soccer. And it's Montpellier not are not Paris Saint Germain. Or li- no, it's not tractor pulling either. But but it's it's not the national sport in France. Like their obsession at that point definitely was cycling. And you know you kind of feel when you do see him playing in this World Cup, he should have been playing at a much higher level than that. Montpellier aren't Bordeaux, they're they're not OM, they're not Paris Saint-Germain, they're not one of the powerhouses of French football. And the one thing that I kept thinking watching this game was, this guy should have been playing in Italy. That's the level of class he had at the time. He should have been playing Italian football, not living on the Côte d'Azur in south of France. I agree, 100%. Freddie Rincon was in there playing really well and there was a lot of good players in that team. Make I, I don't know, like... Colombia. I was trying to put myself in the time frame though. Like Colombia hadn't been in the World Cup for many, many years. Uh, I'm watching them with today's eyes, through today's eyes, which is they were one of the stronger South American sides. But as we outlined in in Game One, they, they had kind of just struggled their way to this tournament, and yet they left a legacy after that. Then they did, they did, and and like I mean, I suppose the, I I suppose the whole history of Colombian football from that era obviously is shadowed, is shadowed by the events in Colombia. Uh, the the issues around 
Pablo Escobar and and the, and the narco trafficking that was obviously going on, the cartels, their influence on football in Colombia at that time. I think in terms of the national team, I would I, my my recollection would be that you know that 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 Colombian generation, if you like, probably ninety four, that they were they were moving towards, like you said, it was a long time since they had been in a World Cup by nineteen ninety. The money that was washing through the sport was only starting to percolate up. Probably in in you know by the time it it just was too soon for them basically nineteen ninety you know and they were kind of going it was uh I'm not sure I I I'm not sure what they would have expected from from the tournament I mean Yugoslavia would have been would have been a very very strong would have been a very very strong proposition to me actually in that group I mean obviously West Germany Yugoslavia are just just the most one of the most fascinating stories of the entire World Cup given again what was going on in the Balkans at that time what was beginning to unfold. And the impact on the football team, like it was, I know you touched on it in an earlier episode about the, whatever about the Balkan War, but if if that Yugoslav team had stayed together and the team and the players that were coming behind them, you were probably looking at if the Yugoslavs, if Yugoslavia had still been in existence in 1994, they had won the World Championship in 1987. They, I'd say they would have gone very close to winning the World Cup in 1994. Just looking at the names. The names alone that were already there and that were coming in, like in that, in 1990, you already had Robert Yarn, you had Boban, who didn't actually travel to the World Cup. He wasn't in the squad that year. Um, Alan Boxic. Alan Boxic. Well, the bench, uh, the bench. Look at the bench for this game, guys. The bench. I have the squad there in front of me. Look at the bench. Let me just give you a few names from the bench from the Colombian game. Prazinecki, Darko Panchev, Bocic, which Karen mentioned, yeah. Dejan Savicevic, and Davor Suker. So there's there's like uh, five straight off that you're like Jesus, you know. They'd be yeah. obviously some of them went on to start with Croatia in '98, but like look at the be- like when you when you look at that for a bench of young fellas at a World Cup, you're saying to yourself, you know, and then like the likes of um, uh, Dragan Stajkovic, Pixie, right? He yeah. was known as he was like the great lost talent like that he never he never delivered on what he had like he was supposed to be you know like kind of uh, the way I remember it anyway that he was you know the greatest talent to come out of the Balkans but he was always injured and 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 stuff like that but he you know look it's just an incredible array of talent that they had and then as as Mike Mike said there the 19 they won the world youth cup in 87 and then i guess you know most or a few of those fellas i just mentioned should have should have maybe even won the world cup in 98 with croatia you know if they had a bit of bit of luck or whatever they could have went all the way eight years later but like that 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 87 team i mean i was i was looking at the team this afternoon and a half dozen names just leapt off as i said i mentioned yarny there yarny boban suker steamach Prazinecci and Mijatovic were all on that 87 uh, youth youth team that won the World Cup. And they were only, I'm a, a share of those were on that, as Dave said, are on, were on the World Cup squad, but they were, they were only, they were only kids. They were nothing but kids. <laughs> and the, the other, the other, the other name, the other name that actually on the Colombian side, of course, that we, I mean, it, when, when you asked me about this and you sent me the games, like the only Colombians, the only Colombians that I remembered were, were Higuita, obviously for the antics and Valderrama and maybe, maybe a bit, um, Rincon as well, but, uh, I didn't know that Andres Escobar played in this game until I until I went to check. Like the the Escobar and was later assassinated. One of the few that was playing abroad at the time, like he was playing in the Swiss league at the time. Yeah, 
Yeah, and that's you know, but I, I, I never, you know, I, I obviously associated with '94 and and everything that went went down there. But that's, um, you know, it's funny when you look back and you you kind of superimpose the knowledge you have now on on these teams and these these lists. It really, you know, gives a whole different perspective of it. Because the other thing is, like the way I understand it, the Yugoslav thing was bubbling up. Like throughout the nineties or throughout the eighties, like right up to you know, and and I know I know I was looking at there was one story. One of the one of the Yugoslavs was was basically asked out of the team. Katanic, Katanic, who was taken off in this game, later sat out one of the games uh, because of a threat to his family back home. <laughs> so you know, you could you. Could, uh, I I think the thing with Yugoslavia is and. Our perception, we've already talked somewhat about the Soviet Union and about Romania, but our perception of Yugoslavia was that that was your typical Eastern European communist country. It wasn't. It was a different form of communism to every other Eastern Bloc country. They were far more Western-oriented, and that was a pragmatism on Tito's part. But once Tito dies in 1980, from that point on, Yugoslavia is starting to tear itself apart from within. Yeah. Because they haven't got that strong dictator to hold them together. And and our perception of Yugoslavia was this is a country. Yugoslavia was a series of republics. There was the Republic of Serbia, Croatia, Slovenia. It was a fragile federal state as opposed to being one nation as we understood many others to be. And watching this game, it struck me, Dave, that the... the camaraderie and the team spirit was seen pretty solid like I watched the Romanians in game two and you really feel there's something wrong with that group in terms of the dynamics plenty of talent but not that buzz it was there in the Yugoslav side obviously they had lost 4-1 in their opening games that they had to win this game that was part of it but it, it is remarkable to think how disparate the, or how, how many different issues there were and yet how united they were as a group of players although as you said the stuff was going on with Katnik and, and other players too and there's a similar, isn't there a similar story like with the basketball, the, the basketball teams from that, or their, their bas- you know, which is not a sport that they were magnificent at and they could have done great things with, you know, that they, but, but you're right, they did look at, and, it, and you know, even when you read stuff about it now, the people involved look back in it as a lost chance because that team really did look capable of doing something. And, and I mean, and it wasn't a great World Cup. Like you know, in terms of the quality, you know, I think I think you know they might they 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 could have, you know, if they get past Argentina, who knows? But whatever, you know, I guess that's what it's all about. But um, certainly a, a great a great kind of what if story, you know. There's two episodes really in the run up to the World Cup from a Yugoslav point of view. When you again, well, even at the time, I'd say if. If if my thirteen year old self had been aware of them, you just have been shaking your head like. But uh, but looking back now, they're ex- they're extraordinary. Really, there was a club game um, between Dinamo Zagreb and Red Star. Um, it was one of the worst one of the worst episodes of hooliganism in European football history. The the upshot of it all, there, there was says Arkan actually Arkan of the the infamous war criminal. Uh, from, from from later on in Yugoslav history was in the Red Star end, uh, marshalling some of the supporters from the Red Star side. A riot essentially erupted. The stadium was eventually set on fire before the end of it. But in the middle of all of this going on, um, some of the Zagreb player or some of the Zagreb supporters tried to invade the other end of the ground through the pitch um, to get to the Red Star players. And what happened in the middle of it was Vonimir Boban, who was playing for Zagreb, actually attacked a police officer who was trying to stop Zagreb fans. And as a result, 
that was essentially why he didn't go to the World Cup. He had obviously he had obviously pinned his colours to the Croatian mast in that way, so he he couldn't go. Their last their last friendly was in Zagreb before the World Cup it was against the Netherlands, and the local the local uh, supporters who turned out booed the Yugoslav anthem. They booed the coach. They booed the players. They actually the the Croat flag, of course, is quite similar to the Dutch flag. So they they you know manufactured flags to uh, to reflect that and and give their support to the Dutch. So I mean, when you think about it, it was a, a desperately um, desperately tense, desperately dangerous sort of um, scenario for them. And as as they mentioned, Katnitz, that was before the World Cup quarterfinal, quarterfinal against Argentina. His family were threatened, and uh, he asked. I think it was like. I think it was like four or five hours before the game, or, or or something like that. It was very close to kickoff. He just said, "I, I just can't, I can't go out." He, he wasn't, he wasn't used off the bench, nothing. So I mean, for them to go into the first game, then against West Germany, play quite well, but still get hockeyed four-one, um, and you know they obviously needed a result, but to to pull out the start. And it's interesting, actually. I mean, one of the, one of the one of the things about when you're looking for highlights and looking for recordings of the games now on YouTube and various other places, you're praying to God you come across one with Barry Davis doing the commentary. Mm. And <laughs> the, highlights, the highlights I came across, the, the footage I came across for Yugoslavia Colombia had Barry Davis, and it, it's a it's a one nil win. It's a goal from Yazic. Great goal. Um, it's a. It's a beautiful goal. It's Susic just kind of lob, just kind of dinks a little, a little cross over. He chests it about six, seven yards out, and he just volleys it. Higuita falls back in his backside, and kind of the, the camera goes back to him. He's kind of sitting there like a guy on the beach with his hands behind him and his knees up, kind of going, "What the hell am I going to do about that?" Yeah. But Davis, has, he, you know, Barry Davis has a line. It's nothing, but again, in his brilliantly sparing way, it kind of saves you having to watch the entire game. Uh, I think it's about seven words. He's, it's, uh, he just says, Susic, Yazic, yes, they've got it right. So you, you kind of know from that that obviously the Yugoslavs have been getting very close to nailing it, yes. but they haven't nailed it yet. I know they nailed it. And then after that, they rattle one off the crossbar very soon afterwards. It's a beautiful move. Stojkovic is in the middle of it. Um, Yarny makes a run to set that post-hitting uh, chance up and it's just mesmerising. He's only just off the friend- bench, Mick, and I had to check who was that because I was just kind of yeah. idly watching it. And it's amazing. Uh, one of the things I've discovered re-watching these games is I get, you get a chill in the back of your neck when you realise, Jesus, that's Yarny. I've been watching him. I watched him in the late 90s in way more detail. But there he is as a young lad. It's, it's like trans- transported in time. And that was an amazing, amazing uh, run that he did. Yeah, it's it's just a... It's it's a fabulous it's a fabulous fabulous goal the goal and then the shot off the crossbar that you just described with with, with Yarn in the middle of it is it's fabulous so you see these little these little kind of cameos of how brilliant Yugoslavia could could be at that time but again it was interesting actually reading some of the media before the World Cup there was questions over their spirit uh, which I suppose to be kind to them was probably connected to what was going on at home rather than their than their mental fortitude let's say but. Uh, I think again, again, maybe it could be the argument made with the West German game when the West Germans went after them, they kind of fell away a little bit. Um, but on the day against Colombia, they had it. They got it sorted in the end. Now they got it sorted for long enough to win the game. Now. I've seen interviews with the the goalkeeper Thomas Ivkovic since, where he said that prior to the World Cup, they were all taken into a room, and I, he didn't contextualize it with with the example of the game between Red Star and Dinamo. 
But I'd say that was the background. That's what caused it. They were taken into a room and they basically said, listen, we're putting all that aside. We're here to play for each other. And I think that was the only way they were able to achieve unity because you can't unite that group when you've got so many nationalities representative unless it's about being honourable to each other. Two points on the board in their opening game meant Colombia were by no means out after this defeat. They were still right in the hunt for the knockout stages. But what was really important after this victory for Yugoslavia was they were right back in it, although they still needed a big result against UAE. That's the end of this game. Let's move on. Cameroon 2, Romania 1. All right, second game of the day. Uh, make the most colourful game of football I've ever seen in my life when it comes to the jerseys. You got you got yellow, blue and red socks against green, red and yellow socks. I don't think that will ever happen again in any sport, ever. I'm going to be honest with you, Rob. It was a little bit... It, that game between Cameroon and Romania and the jerseys on show now in that particular match was a little bit like looking at a Penny Sports catalogue from 1990. <laughs> All it was missing was Mick McCarthy in a pretty bad suit. It was a hell of a, a hell of a thing. It was just dazzling, and uh, of course, it was on during the day. It wasn't under lights, like so. It was uh, you had the daytime sun and everything, and uh, yeah, it was just um, yeah, it was psychedelic. I'm just wondering what it looked like on the big telly and tore her. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying to. Here's here's my memory of of, of that World Cup. That's I had a lot of issues with Cameroon. <laughs> okay, <laughs> a lot of issues with Cameroon. <laughs> Because I thought that they were a filthy team. Like, to use GA parallels, they were filthy. And nobody was, you know, they were they were getting away with it. And it was like, oh, isn't it great that they're here? They were filthy. <laughs> and, and, like, it's just, and everyone was like, ah, but you can't say that because they're here and they're from Africa and we'll have to be condescending and patronizing. And I really, I remember we're getting very angry watching it. <laughs> And and just going, you know, are they not going to be called out? And I actually had the same problem with a certain Ulster hurling county later. Interesting. <laughs> um, you know, in, in in a couple of All Ireland semi finals, uh, who again, you know, people say, oh, we're not going to talk about that, but never mind. But anyway, that, that was my <laughs> my big thing with Cameroon, and I was like, isn't it great as they progress? I'm like, no, I don't think so. I think they're actually filthy, and they're not really, you know, that nope. you know, if it was any other country, would be you know slaughtering them for this but we have to be all kind of condescending and patronising because they're the novel African nation. Yeah, if this was and Uruguay, we'd, we'd be stereotyping them. Absolutely, yeah. If it was Uruguay, they'd be disgracing the game and they were dragging the game down and, and you know, but it was Cameroon. Oh, they're a bread of fresh air. They were not. A, they were a bread of fresh air, like kicking lumps out of people and, and we couldn't talk about it. I, I feel like... You know, it was... Um, it was PC gone mad. Dave, my nine-year-old self has just, you know, lo- lost a little bit of uh, hope in life after hearing that, okay? <laughs> Cameroon were inspiring to a nine-year-old, to a 19-year-old. They were everything. There was wrong with the world, Mick Foley. <laughs> yeah, no, well, they, well, well, Rob, if, 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 if it was knocking the scales for eyes at nine years old, it wasn't a minute too soon. <laughs> Not a minute too soon, so on. They were absolute muck. <laughs> and you can actually... You, you can you can see it again in the Romanian game. The, the the thing that struck me about the Romanian game, having watched the Argentinian match, was that the main difference was that Cameroon were now confident enough that they could get away with absolute murder. <laughs> um, they went for it, and they played they played with a degree a degree more footballing confidence as well. But by Jesus, they fairly they fairly sorted into the Romanians for for 
stretch. I mean, the two goals, they won 2 0, or 2 1, sorry, excuse me, 2 1. Two goals for Roger Miller, who came on as a sub again. But, like, he, again, he muscles lads off of himself, you know, to, to, to create both chances. Yeah, it was a foul. Uh, Romero, oh, that's without a shadow of a doubt. Like, again, again, the referee was probably just conditioned to what had gone before for the previous 80 minutes and thought a guy flaking a fellow to the floor is not a foul anymore in this game. It's just. It's just a, a, a hearty challenge, you know. It was, it was just absolute. But he yeah. danced by the corner flag, so it was okay. <laughs> He's a great smile. To quote the Sultans of Ping, a nice young man with a lovely smile. <laughs> exactly. You didn't get caught up in the goals or anything. You didn't even did that. Didn't sway you at all? Like two goals off the bench at thirty-eight years of age. You didn't go, "Wow, what a moment." No, I mean, I, 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 I appreciate later Miller's achievement and you know and I, I and stuff but at the time like it was just as I'm watching it you're just going geez no one's gonna call this <laughs> like no one's gonna no one's gonna point out you know what what what's what's going on here but you know because the I guess it was a great like if you're we're watching the tournament on television and, and I, I mean I as we as we know as we know television productions like they like a storyline and you know a narrative and this was a great storyline like this was a fantastic novel event you know to have an african nation and and yes to have this guy you know roger miller as as this um and he is the guy like if you talk to you know when i think if you know write down the first three things that come into your mind about the 1990 world cup like he is one of the things that i'll remember about that world cup he's the you know one of the first things that springs to your mind he's like the face one of the faces of the tournament uh, but no, I wasn't caught up in it. Um, I wasn't caught up in it at all. Uh, and again, the Romanians, like I, I, I always liked the Romanians. <laughs> I don't know why I, I, you know, apart from obviously when we played them, but you know that the Romanians, I liked the way the Romanians played, you know, the Romanians had a certain way of playing, you know, they were very technical and I, and I loved that, you know, I loved, I loved the way they played. To bring it back to the, Ru- the Romanian, I'm going to recommend a book beat that I've I've enjoyed over the last couple of years about this World Cup, and one of the better chapters is on Romania. It's that Simon Simon Hart's book, The World in Motion. It's fantastic. He's gone to great lengths to research these stories. We talked briefly in Romania's game the last day about agents and foreign clubs suddenly trying to tap them up in their hotel in during this World Cup. Apparently, it accelerated after the vic- the first round victory. That it gets to ridiculous levels. There's there's a great interview in Simon's book about Florin Radicayu, and he's rooming, I think, with Ian Lopescu. And literally, while one is on the phone to Anderlecht, the other is on the phone to Bayer Leverkusen. And they're being offered the sun, moon, and stars. Neither has an agent. And they're literally just listing out demands. Yeah, if you can give me this, this, and this. And there's a brilliant quote from Radicayu in it. Oh, obviously, we know later playing for West Ham. But he transfers to Barry uh, during all this. He was on a thousand, I think, US dollars a year, he he reckoned was his salary in Romania. And he said, he basically got 400 times that from Barry, plus an Alfa Romeo. And he didn't even know how to drive. 
He was only 20, like. I mean, my God, you think of a 20-year-old in that situation, Mick. I, I, the, the other thing to say about these guys is they were an incredible group of players. We were, we remember them in Ireland for a specific reason, the team we beat on our greatest moment. But, like, you, I'm, look, I watched them play here, the technicality. If I take one thing away from this rewatch of the World Cup, it'll be Lakatus. He's, he's just an amazing player. Start yeah. with him. He was outstanding in the first in their first game against the Soviet Union. He scores the two goals, and he's just outstanding. Mm. Uh, from the very minute the ball is kicked off, from the, from the kickoff, he's just he's he's on it, and he's he's showing up all the frailties that 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 the Soviet Union eventually that eventually caused the Soviet Union to 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 fall apart in that particular game. Like they just they had on a, obviously you had a you had a young Haji doing his thing. Um, first time we see him. In this yeah. World Cup. He's suspended yeah, the first game. It is. Was he already the Maradona, the Carpathians by the time he got to the 1990 World Cup? Yes. I think he was. I think that, because I, I think I remember reading that during this World Cup or, or hearing it maybe. Maybe hearing it from George Hamilton for some reason. He's taken off in this game and the fans audibly boo. They are not happy. He's not happy. But but the thing here that's that's most fascinating about the Romanians, part of our and I won't say ignorance because it's not that we were ignoring international football, but during that European ban for English clubs, our focus on European club football dissipates. Irish clubs are still in it, but as we all know, generally it's English clubs that Irish fans support. And with that ban, we stopped pay, paying attention. We should have known about Marius Lakatouche. He scored two goals in a European Cup final. You know, when Stoya win, the, like, the, he's no flash in the pan that suddenly arrives at Italia 90. This is a guy with quality uh, that had delivered a Champions League, as as we would call it now, the European Cup, first eye of Bucharest. Actually, in the book, one of the most fascinating stories, the person that was over Stoya at the time was uh, Valentin Ceausescu, Nikolai Ceausescu's son. And when his when his parents are, like the only dictators from the Warsaw Pact who ultimately are killed by their own people. They're, they're shot by firing squad. Lakatouche is the person that hides Valentin Ceausescu to save his life. That's the relationship that those players have had with him. Uh, and he talks openly about it in the book that he wasn't his father's son in, in that way. He was, he was someone that worked within their football club that they all had great time for. And when these really crazy events are unfolding, they're trying to protect him. Just final thoughts on this game. 2-1 win for Cameroon absolutely cemented their place in the next round. From a Romania perspective, they were most certainly not out having beaten the Soviet Union, such was the way those World Cups uh, were were born out. Anything else you took from that, Dave, and your quick look back on it and the highlights? Um, no, I guess, I again, I, I associated Popescu, in my memory, I had associated Popescu, Georgi Popescu with the 94 yeah, World Cup. Yeah, but he was brilliant or, here. Or joining, certainly... Yeah, I didn't. I didn't remember. I had no memory of that. And then I see Dumitrescu, or Dumitrescu was on the on the bench, who later obviously moves to Spurs as well. If memory serves me uh, correctly, that's right, Lily Dumitrescu. Yeah, yeah. Um, was that the Aussie Ardiles kind of? Was that the the Aussie Ardiles years? But that was it. And and again, the, going back to Karen's point, which I think is really interesting, is like that we were very insular and very English, if you want to say that, in our outlook. Because I remember when United played against Barcelona and Haji, 
like I hadn't seen Hattie for a couple of years, you know, that kind of way. Like that was three years later, wasn't it? Three years or four years later when United played Barca in the Champions League and Hattie was playing and you're like, oh, there's Hattie. I haven't seen him for a while. <laughs> you know, you're like, like there's these, there was a gap in our, in our, um, I guess in our, viewing habits if you want to if you want to put it like that that we, we whatever the english did we we followed kind of thing which isn't a compliment yeah well, i mean the ac milan's win that year in the in the european cup final wasn't even televised live in the uk that's how much interest they lost during the band like there was a short highlights program that night and i remember watching it that, but you know, like that, 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 that thing, that, that insularity in England. Remember, a couple of years ago, the Daily Mail had uh, the Ballon d'Or award, and and they had a picture saying Messi, Ronaldo, and some other guy, and it was Xavi. <laughs> and it was like, you know, they had no time for Xavi. Like he was not, you know, he was not good enough for them. And you know, whatever. Like everyone else in Europe was like, oh, Xavi is very credible to our place. Not for the, not for the Daily Mail. Um, so, you know, I think that th- those habits are going to die hard. we got to move on because we've got a game to cover. Uh, I like our, uh, Kieran. you said it yesterday, we're going to have our lists. And my, one of my uh, new lists that I've drawn up is because I'm just enjoying all the tackling in this World Cup is my favourite tackle. So far, Mick McCarthy is in the nominations and Popescu for a tackle on Makanaki in this game was just glorious. Sliding tackles, goal-saving tackles. Uh, some of the defending is amazing when players just went all in. But anyways, enough of that. Next game. Italy 1, United States 0. All right, final game of the day. We were going to make this our feature game, but my God, have we got lost in the stories, Kieran? Italy winning 1-0. It was more dramatic than the uh, scoreline would suggest. An amazing performance by the Americans, but uh, here we are, well into the podcast. Yeah, we're, get, we're getting more stream of consciousness in these podcasts than a William Faulkner novelist. <laughs> it's, it's working out brilliantly. And yes, this was to be our big game. The the old world versus the new. The the hosts against the next hosts. The aristocrats against the, the young upstarts. And I think we possibly, going into this game, wouldn't have held out too much hope that USA were going to perform as well as they did because, as has already been pointed out, these were kids largely uh, involved in part-time football. So I think the context here is an amazing performance by the United States of America in this game because you would have expected them to get absolutely hammered out the gate. And whether that's the combination of the pride some of them have, like there's a lot of Italian-Americans in the, in the team. I read an article somewhere by Tony Miola where he had intended to go to this World Cup anyway as a fan with his parents because it was going to be their wedding anniversary and his father had been a professional in Italy. There's there's a huge resonance for those Italian-Americans in this side. This must have been the day of their lives to get to play in the Stadio Olimpico in Rome against Italy. I forget which one of these guys was playing for a club called Brooklyn Americans or Brooklyn Italian Americans who I played against myself in junior soccer many years ago when I first moved here. And that, you know, that wouldn't be any great boast that you played for Brooklyn Italian Americans, but that's the pedigree of where these guys were coming from. Like the, I think the American squad, the age was 23. The average age was 23. Four of them had experience playing in Europe. Uh, seven were college kids. And and the rest had all knocked around the various semi-pro and indoor leagues. A couple of them were very accomplished indoor players. 
which again isn't a great kind of boast, I don't think. And and here they are looking at you know lining up against you know Baresi and Maldini, and and this this Italian team who's you know the team is loaded and the bench is loaded and these guys really have absolutely no pedigree. But you know, as as the person living in America, I, I think it's important to put it in context of of this is a seismic moment in American soccer history. It's their first World Cup for 40 years. They've been trounced by the Czechs in the first uh, game. And now this losing 1-0 to this incredibly, you know, in- incredibly good Italian team is a is such a credible result, has such an impact. It kind of, it's a coming of age moment for the American soccer team. And even though, you know, they're obviously going to be going home after this, or, you know, they're out, they have one more game left, but they're they're out. This was the, that was the game that showed you know America could compete and set up America for what would be you know much better World Cups um, you know twelve years later America you know should have beaten Germany um, in 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 the two thousand and two World Cup and and really you know shaken things up it would be impossible in nineteen ninety to imagine the American team of two thousand and two achieving that but that was made possible by these kind of pioneers um if you like and and even if you look today I I, I looked up some of the guys because I love where are they now stuff and you know one of them's an investment banker one of them's a lawyer <laughs> you know they're these were they, these were not men who were gone on to make a, a you know vast sums of money from the game and, and and to retire kind of on that. The captain's a high school teacher in Brooklyn. Yeah, there you go. I mean, and that's you know that, that that's that, that's the pedigree. And I mean, like that, I, I've done the where are they now? And some some of them are fascinating. Some of them don't play beyond this World Cup. There's one guy. He's only twenty three or twenty four, and this is it. This is the peak of his life. Uh, and at that time, he's a college player. And I I was kind of thinking about it. If you're a college footballer, and I not obviously not a footballer by American standards, college soccer player, and you get to go on a trip where Basically, the roots of it are you get to Rome and Florence. God, I'd be happy. It's kind of, a, and the, the other thing to remember too is the context of where American soccer was at. The Pele years of the 70s were gone. The North American Soccer League went bankrupt. They had no national league for over a decade. And this is right smack in the middle of that decade. So they had regional professional leagues and they had indoor tournaments that were popular in certain parts of the country. And then they had the college game uh, which is a very different, uh, you know, type of soccer. I mean, you have roaming, you have roaming subs in college soccer in America. Uh, you know, it's a different sport or different kind of sport than than professional soccer. So really, to come from there, they really are underdogs. Uh, mixing it with, and it, and I think at the time it's fair to say the Serie A was the greatest league in the world, right? In 1990, I think. The 80s and Serie A were the golden years. So, so by 1990, was still the, the league in the world. The world's best players were there. And here you have the Italian team, many of them lionising it or lording it in Serie A, playing a bunch of college kids. It's a very, very romantic tale. Mick, how did they go about this game? What made them so competitive in it? They went 10 men behind, 11 men behind the ball whenever they didn't have it. <laughs> That's basically it. But no, like, I mean, in fairness, it was more than that. I mean, it was... Uh, They'd obviously taken an awful tanking in the first yeah. game. And on the way to the game, I saw a note in, a, in an article saying like when they were with the bus, when the team bus was on the way to to the Olympic Stadium, the Italian fans were outside, like putting the two the two hands up, five five fingers up in each hand, as so to say, it's going to be ten. You're going to concede ten tonight, and it was only one, and they and they could have had an equaliser at the very end. So like they they just they just sat in and. 
from the Italian point of view, you could like you know, without wanting to take away from the American performance, you can see you can see the little bits of issues that the Italians are having trying to put a team together. Like obviously Scalacci comes on in the first game and scores scores against Austria. He comes on again in this game, so they haven't they haven't quite made the made the transition to Scalacci as 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 the as the bolter, if you like, in the, in the team yet. They're still going with Carnavale from from Napoli. Viali, Viali, who was obviously the number, he was the number one striker in Italy at the time. He hadn't had the, he had had a successful season, but his form wasn't great. And you can see it in this game. Things are almost coming off for him. He does very well to set up the first goal. The, the goal for Giannini is essentially a ball comes across. Viali actually dummies the ball. He steps over and he takes four American players out with a step over. And Giannini goes through the gap and just and just hammers it to the net. But beyond that. He has a he has a, a middling a middling game. Um, there's a there's a Mexican wave about halfway through the first half. Um, so you know the the scenario is set up. The Americans are sitting back. They're going to let the Italians onto them, and it's just fantastic defending. I mean, a couple of the American defenders are fantastic. Miola has a very good game um, for the second game in a row. I, there's a penalty against the, the, the States, and uh, and Italy hit it, hop it off the post. Um, so they get a little bit of luck as well, but I mean they've earned the luck. They earned the luck because their spirit is fantastic, and they um, and towards the end of the game, in, in the last quarter, in the, maybe the last yeah, the last third of the game, you can start to see the Americans starting to throw throw a few bits and pieces together, and, and they have that chance with about twenty minutes to go where they where, where they could have they could have got a goal. The significance of this game for the Italians is actually there's a bit of pressure comes on Vicini after this to make the changes because. He's been resistant to put Baggio in largely because there's so much pressure on Baggio after the transfer from Fiorentina to Juventus and and so much division as a result of that transfer. But after this, they've had two ropey enough displays at home and this is what's going to convince Vicini to to say, right, I'm going to commit to Scalacci because he's got some form. I'm going to bring Baggio in and we'll talk about that the next day, what that leads to. From an American perspective... I, I saw an interview the other day with Dr. Joseph Fenglas where he said that they had read Bob Gansler had said the game they were targeting, the one they were going to win was Czechoslovakia. And he basically did the classic GA manager thing of putting that up in the dressing room and saying, right, we're going out, we're going to tonk these he guys. He Tony Scott across from Derry. Got the, got the blood off. <laughs> so he's basically gone... Oh, we're not having this. And and I think that, that might be the difference in the US attitude. Maybe perhaps they took Czechoslovakia for granted, whereas they knew what they were facing with Italy. I don't know, Karen. I don't think an American team with even even allowing for the innate American confidence in all things, I don't think they were they were, they would be looking at a team of European players and thinking, oh, these these are you know these will be no this will be easy for us, you know. I, I really I, I can see that being being kind of but, the issue. Well, perhaps Doctor Joe made it up in the classic yeah, GA exactly. I really, as well. I, you know, because these fellas like DGs, like look at the pedigree. I mean, how. John Harks obviously played a lot in the nineties for Sheffield Wednesday and and and, uh, and, and actually there's a great story about Ron Atkinson. Remember Ron Atkinson was given the six weeks to save Nottingham Forest one time and, and Harks was retired and he called up Big Ron and Big Ron famously said, Harksy, get over here. You've you've plenty left in your locker yet. <laughs> 
Harks was out of retirement, drafted into the Forest team, and it turns out he didn't have much left in his locker at all. Big Ron's hunch was incorrect. And the, the other thing, the other thing about this American team that, like, you know, in I, I mean, and at the time, I mean, I'm, I didn't care two jots about the American team. I'm interested in this American team now because I've been here 20 years and I've been in, interested in American soccer for that time and, and the history of it in particular, which is very interesting. But I, I love um, Harks was was a key player on the team and Eric Winalda was on the bench who I think was playing in Germany at the time. And and of course, in 98 then, uh, Harks was having an affair with Winalda's wife and that kind of messed up the American team at the 1998 World Cup. It's amazing. Uh, Dave, have you come across the podcast, American Fiasco, which is on that? I, I recommend it to the listeners. It's a six-part podcast done by WNYC, and it's incredible. It tra- charts the whole story of what went wrong in that 98 World Cup because there was a feeling that what happened in 2002 could have happened in 98 had the progression yeah. worked. Well, cer- certainly, I mean, in 98, they had their own professional league. You know, they were in a much, much stronger position. More more of the Americans had played abroad by 1998 um, and played abroad regularly, you, you know, than, than, um, than this team in 1990. I mean, this was a greenhorn team, if you want to describe it like that. But yeah, 1998 was a, was a you know, catalogue of different disasters. Uh, the Winalda... Harks thing was was kind of only one of them, but that was an important one, I guess. I think Ronaldo Ronaldo missed this game because he'd actually been sent off in the Czechoslovakia game. Yeah, and and he would he would be a key player because in, in my memory of the US team, and I think at the time Ireland used to play them once a year in a friendly. There was it they became the new Poland to the FAI. It was like let's play America in a friendly, but. I do remember Winalda was their, he was their most prolific native-born player at the time because they did have guys like Roy Weggerly subsequently and things like that. But he was the guy that they looked to. So he'd have been a huge um, miss for them in terms of this game against Italy, in terms of what he might have offered going Absolutely. forward. Absolutely. And he, he was, I mean, he was a very kind of typical striker, very cocky, abrasive um, you know, took his chances. He actually, I just, I just looked it up there. Now he wasn't in Germany yet. He would do very well in Germany afterwards uh, with uh, Saarbrücken and, and Bottram. Uh, but he, um, he was definitely a loss. The problem with, we see, my my problem with when I'm analysing something like this now is, is when Alda pollutes the television screen here as a pundit. Uh, and ruins my enjoyment of otherwise perfectly good matches. Um, you know, a real, you know, empty vessel makes the most noise kind of character. So, so when I look back, I'm with Harks, who I'm with John Harks in the Harks Ronaldo love affair or bizarre love triangle or whatever we want to, however we want to describe it. But, when, but the problem, like when you look, like when I look at the American stuff now, obviously, as I said, I could have cared less about the American team in 1990, but that is a fascinating team, um, be, you know, because of everything that that had... Um, and I suppose as well, the one thing about those guys was they were like the post-Pelé generation because that mad few years in the 70s when when you had Pelé and Best and Gordon Banks and all these, um, Beckenbauer and these lads, all of all of that, like they, yeah, Johnny, Johnny Giles. Giles in Vancouver, you know, all this kind of stuff, Ray Tracy, uh, all these guys, that, you know, they, they, that were the generation of the 70s. They were kids in the 70s who grew up um, and then, you know, 
thought soccer was more possible than ever before. But um, there was one thing just before we before we move any further. It was it, it was interesting just from the American point of view. You know, where, as Dave has outlined there really well, like it was it was such a it was such a landmark moment for American fo- for American football and say U.S. soccer um, that you know it struck me in the build into the into the World Cup for them. Everything was such a huge struggle to even at that very moment when they were so close to making this huge leap and, and having this landmark moment. Every little thing was a battle. They had a they had a they had an encounter with the Italians before they ever met them on the field. Um when they were making their arrangements to stay to you know their 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 accommodation and their training arrangements for the World Cup in nineteen ninety, America were due to stay in the Italian sort of I suppose the Italian FA Centre of Excellence, which was outside of Florence. I think it was called Cover Coverciano, I'm gonna say or Coverciano, something like that. Anyway, they had booked We'll Google it. Yeah, it was yeah, do that. So it was it was all booked and sorted and everything. The draw was made for the World Cup and they were put into Italy's group. So the Italians said, Sorry lads, uh double booked. There you're not staying here. But we can recommend another place on the road. The story is Bob Gansler tells it is that we couldn't afford the flight to go over and check where they were putting us. So we kind of went with we lacked in good faith here. So they turned up uh, and in kind of Saipan style, the first thing they saw was like the barbed wire around around the perimeter of the in inverted commas Olympic standard <laughs> training facility that they were put into. It was a place called Terenia. It was quite close to Coverciano, but it was kind of like it was like a it was a little bit more escape to victory, let's say, you know, than than anything. Calling players talked about you know, they found a decent Italian restaurant, so they at least got one good meal a day. They went out and had a meal, but they were sequestered entirely. They had been talking about staying in a downtown hotel and kind of soaking up the vibe and all the atmosphere of the World Cup. They decided to go out out of the, out of town, and they kind of really were getting on each other's wick. Um, there had to be a team meeting, kind of um, pretty serious team meeting um, about sort of everybody pulling their weight. Uh, some of the training sessions were a bit saucy because I think some of the guys, some of the squad players were getting a bit sick of not getting the game and a bit sick of being there. I started kicking the first 11, so that was a problem for them. The money, they, they, they were, as we were talking about, none of them were professional players as such. So they were given contracts by the US Soccer Federation, but they were very poor contracts. Actually, in fact, I think Werner Fricker, who was the head of the US Soccer Federation, he had a construction company, and he put up his construction company as collateral against a loan to help to fund the team when they went to the, when they went to Italian ninety. So like a lot of people had a lot of stuff invested in this, um, but they you know so they, they had all that going on, which obviously engendered a certain team spirit. But uh, you know they were obviously too much on top of each other at times. Um, for it, you know, it almost it almost came apart on them. But again, like that game that game against Italy, and to see them in the second half opening up. And their big chance for the goal before we forget the I know we mentioned it in passing, but it's a free kick from Ramos that Zenga kind of parries. Guy comes, I just can't remember who the guy was who came in for the rebound. Murray, was it Murray? I think it was Murray, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. you're dead right, Dave. He hits it at point blank range. Zenga makes a terrific save, oh, great save. with his with his legs. Squeezes under Zenga, but it's kind of spinning towards the goal line and it's cleared away. But in that moment, like there's almost a you can almost sense the intake of breath in the Olympic Stadium. And they get away with it, and Italy kind of ease it out, and they win the game. They finish up to a chorus of whistles, of whistling. It was just definitely. I mean, if you compare it, if you compare it to the atmosphere that greeted them at the start of the, at the start of the Austrian game, 
when it's just it's just wonderful noise. And by the end of the by the end of the second game, as Kieran was saying, you know the the fans are starting to lose faith, the media are starting to lose faith, and you know things are now set for Italy. They they kind of have to not reinvent themselves, but they certainly have to reset if they're going to go any further in the competition. And America have had that impact on them. Brilliantly summarised. We have reached our time limit. Uh, Kieran. I was just going to say, I take back everything I said about them having a nice trip in Florence and Rome. <laughs> oh, it sounds it sounds a bit more like uh, the 1998 story. Again, listen to American Fiasco and you'll t- hear about the chateau they stayed in, Dave. That didn't go very well for them, did it? Well, well the thing, and the thing, you know, the thing that saddens me about this is America, the American national team is now awash with money. Nike have poured literally billions into this whole operation now in terms of money. And yet, I don't think we're, America has moved on at all. It has moved on, but not enough. Has not progressed like it should have progressed. It's been 30 years, you know, are we producing many better players than we were then? Not. I don't think we're producing a lot more quantity, but not a lot more quality because of, you know, the price of it's a middle class game in America. They haven't opened it up to a poorer demographic. They've excluded large constituencies. And that's why I think America is almost an underachiever, even as we celebrate this great underdog moment in their history. Yeah, it'd be something that we we will try and explore a little bit more on another podcast uh, because, my God, it's fascinating, the American story. When we get to the USA 94 uh, World Cup uh, podcast, Kieran. <laughs> Uh, uh, maybe we'll just do it around the Austria game, Dave. I, uh, uh, Rob, I, I, th- I think we're not going to be too enthralled by the football in that one, so I'll be glad <laughs> yeah, of a few yards. Dave, thank you so much for joining us. I know our listeners will have loved that, so thanks a million. Thanks a lot, lads. Thanks for having me. Mick, we will talk to you in a few days. You're back within two days. We've left a big gap, and now the fixture list is very unfair. How are you going to recuperate? It's, 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 it's ridiculous. I, I know how Club GA teams feel now. <laughs>